third episode of Reproducibility. We are joined by Julia Roja Hi. from Leipzig. Um, and I'm joined here by Sam Parsons hey. and Sophia Crevel. Hi. And we will be talking about open science. And we are really interested in having Julia on because you are normally communicating mainly through your blog. Am I? So it's a bit different than a podcast, and we've had some issues, you know, getting our mics to work. So maybe it has a bit less issues attached to it. <laughs> what do you, how do you find writing your blog? So I'm not sure whether it's like less issues involved. It's just a very different process because I feel like right now when I listen to all the science podcasts, they are basically just people talking for one hour. And so at least when we at the 100% Confidence Interval write a blog post, it involves like a lot of revisions and editing and so on. So it's probably like less of a technological issue, but just more editing involved in it. And I actually enjoy that a lot. So that's the fun part for me. And do you, um, are all of the posts kind of almost peer reviewed? I remember reading that about some of the posts, at least on your blog. Is that the case for all of them? So yeah, actually we do try to make sure that like all like of us or all four authors of the um, blog read all articles before they get published, whenever it's possible. Awesome. That's really cool. So we both enjoyed reading your blog post about being a bystander, bystander, not bystanders. Bystander, the imposter. Imposter, imposter, imposter. <coughs> I, I just love yes. the title. The, the title of We Need More Imposter Syndrome, I think, triggered me before I even read it. So I had to read it carefully. <laughs> but it's very clear immediately that you meant something very different from what I inferred. Um, could you could you just describe it for those that haven't read it? And then we'll link to the article itself so they can get everything. OK, so the, the title basically was just clickbait. And it seemed to have worked. <laughs> So um, in the blog post, I kind of argue that there are like different types of imposter syndrome. And so the one thing is like feeling as if you don't belong. And then the other thing is like knowing that you only know very little of the things that you should or need to know. And so I'm, I'm arguing that we need more of that like scientific humility type of imposter syndrome, which is probably different from what many people normally think of when they when they talk about imposter syndrome. But I think all these things are kind of confounded. And so my basic point is that people should be more humble, I guess, and making less strong claims in their research. But that's really odd because we're normally taught to make pretty big kind of claims about our research. So do you think that the current scientific culture kind of goes against that? Um, well, it sort of depends. So there seems to be that idea that you have to like kind of sell your stuff in a pretty big way and kind of not talk about the dirty details. So just with my experience, like with publishing, if you get like a good editor and good reviewers, you don't have to do that. Though I see how that might vary by subfields. So I think some subfields might be more prone to that like uh, type of research that does make very strong claims and in the end adds like a paragraph on policy implications. And I don't feel like um, in personality psychology you have to do that. Well, I, I, it's interesting because 
in the UK, you have this thing called impact. And so in order to get university funding, mm. our researchers need to show that they have impact and it causes people to have these like random things where they go out and they work with theatres in order to have impact or um, so once you make it a metric, it kind of becomes pretty messed up. Um, but it, I think humility is key, isn't it? Yeah, and I think what, what was really nice that I liked about your uh, your post was that it kind of reframed imposter syndrome into something that could be actually useful apart from this kind of self-judgment that uh, kind of collapses you, I guess. Um, I think one of the interesting things is that, for me at least, I'm usually fine, is when I'm thinking about jobs. Mm-hmm. That's when the imposter syndrome hits in because, as you kind of rightly point out, that's when you start to compare yourself to others. Mm-hmm. And if one if one particular group of people is more than happy to p-hack their way to twice as many publications, if that's the metric that we're looking at being hired on, that might kind of we'll shoot ourselves in the foot, right? So that, that's where I kind of... I liked your reframing of it based around kind of skills and development. Mm-hmm. Which is nice. <laughs> Do you have any new blog posts in the pipeline? Uh, actually, I got one on my to-do list. Though, like, normally now I would wait for somebody else to write one first. I think I'm putting a lot of pressure on the other guys to write more. Um, <laughs> but so recently I attended a, like, summer school on social economic inequality. So there was only, there was, like, one historian there. But apart from that, it was only, like, econ grad students. And so I wanted to write something about what psychology might be able to learn from economists because it was really interesting. They seem to have like a completely different research culture and I found it quite fascinating. What what is it? Sophia was also interested. Uh, so first of all, they had so they had those like super important, super eminent economists uh, giving like talks. And they were like, the students were just like asking really hard questions all of the time during the talk and like really like probing their knowledge and like suggesting alternative explanations and so on. I've never seen that happening um, at a site event that people actually ask like really hard questions that might invalidate the whole talk. And um, apart from that, they... So we talked about requirements for getting your PhD and they thought it was insane that my university asked me to have two publications um, accepted in a peer-reviewed journal to get your PhD because they were like, this would take me like seven years, right, to get to that point. So they do publish much slower. um, And basically all the talks had like two parts. The first part was kind of like a um, a psych talk. So there was one on gender bias um, in teachers and so the first part was like totally normal psych introduction. And then they start, uh, suddenly start writing down all the equations and derive their formal frameworks and like postulate their models and formulas. So it was really interesting just to see those like really, really pronounced differences between two fields that actually do look at very similar things. It sounds like there is no, you go. Oh, no, and like the first thing sounds sort of, um, oh God, this, hearing yourself so, is so weird. Amy, um, so me and Sophia are both hearing echoes of ourselves because of the weird Skype setup. Um, so Sophia, do you want to go again? Yes, I was going to take off my headphones until I finished with this. Um, well, I mean, 
Right, so the, yeah, the, the specification thing is cool for the for theories, but the, the first thing that you're talking about um, when it comes to asking hard questions and also not expecting people to sort of have a lot of output within within a PhD, both kind of sound like they're actually related to this, um, the first thing we talked about with the, um, being humble, sort of being, an, um, you know, having this imposter syndrome in the, in the right kind of way, um, because they sound like enforced humility in a way, mm -hmm. I guess, because if you're, if the field's uh, general atmosphere is to question everything and be critical um, loudly mm -hmm. and um, without um, people saying, oh, you know, there's a problem with tone here, um, then I guess you are, you're going to have, as a result, people who are more humble um, with what they claim, right? Is, is, is that the kind of thing that the, these economists also... Like, was that the impression that you got from their research? Or were they still bragging and were they still going, oh, you know, I've got the, I've got the biggest effect? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you... By that, I meant, like, what I meant was, like, over... Um, like, that was a really silly way of phrasing, like, something about over um, overreaching in your conclusions. So I did get the impression that this, like, works together in the way you described it. So I just sense more like humility, but also people being way more careful in making their claims. But I, so I talked to a lot of people there about these differences, and it also seems like it can go too far. Like you have these situations where a grad students want to present something, and then they basically ask so many questions that he doesn't even get through the first slide. So I guess there might be like oh, wow. some sweet spot like in the middle, but um, I, I do think that we could use a bit of that like rigorous questioning of everybody. So not just grad students, but also of the super eminent old senior researchers. Mm -hmm. I think we could use that a lot in psychology. Yeah, that's definitely, it sounds like a kind of a flatter hierarchy almost, whereas my experience of psych conferences is that the more senior the the presenter or the keynote especially the less kind of substantial questions there are whether it's or whereas for the more junior person they tend to get kind of either slammed or lectured about someone else's work disguised as a question and that it seems like that kind of framework might help to get around that mm -hmm. Maybe. <laughs> do you do you think that putting things more into numbers so naturally your work is I think more on the quantitative side of our science and do you think that putting things into numbers and really thinking about assumptions and thinking about the best way to test things is really key for us in something maybe that at least in our psychology education we didn't learn that much about and I don't know do you think that's something we can learn from The Economist? I think that is something we um, could and maybe should learn from them. So I also see how it can go like a bit too far, but I do feel like compared to the people I met at that summer school, I don't know any mathematics and I had like no stats training, even though like everybody says, oh, you're like a quant person. Like, no, I'm absolutely not. <laughs> compared to what I could know, right? And so that's the other thing where like comparing yourself to other fields might give you like a more realistic picture of what you do know and what you do not know. I think that goes back to your blog post again. And I guess we should flag that you're just doing a second undergrad in computer science. Oh, yes. Yes, I'm doing that. 
So, <laughs> it's, but it's I, just, I just part I, time, so it's not like it's only fifty percent of the cause load. Oh yeah, yeah, that's completely <laughs> manageable. <laughs> This is where we make a concerted effort to not compare ourselves to you. <laughs> <laughs> what, how have you been finding that? Um, so I do find it, um, I actually do enjoy it because I notice that I'm using like kind of part of my brain that I haven't used since high school. So actually like working through mathematical proofs and things like that. So actually I do enjoy that a lot. I also did like that huge mistake. So I'm only like, in my first year now, and somehow I followed their recommended order of courses, so I'm doing all the hard mathematics stuff in the beginning. So it is a bit challenging, but I I am enjoying it a lot, and I actually do think it's a lot of fun. So I kind of sometimes, like I call it stem regret, like uh, regrets about not having studied a, like a proper um, STEM subject. Are you finding that it's influencing... Uh, I guess you're more kind of psych work? Well, it does make me wonder what type of research I want to do in the future and um, how I want to do research. Um, sorry, I, I just I just kind of almost forgot my question. What did I want to say? Oh, yeah. I, so something that came up quite a lot in our journal club and in my recent conversations with with PhD students that are maybe newer in the in the PhD process is this problem with or not problem um this process of skills building and skill accrual in this throughout the PhD so James Heathers has this blog post where he says you know the key thing you should be learning in your PhD is getting skills and I feel like at least here in Oxford a lot of PhDs come in they're like oh my god I now need to have like all the papers and I just need to do all the research and actually we often forget this process of gaining skills so do you make uh, a real effort to you know go and meet economists and go and learn new skills and is that important to you i i wish i mean she's doing this uh, part-time undergrad right yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm more or less quite committed to the converted (laughs) but actually i i do wish i would spend more time on actually building skills and so on so i do feel like i have publish too much too early with too little knowledge and so now I feel like oh oh sheesh maybe I have to go back and check some of the things I did so I do feel like it would have been better to start with the skill formation part so have you lost confidence (laughs) (laughs) can can you explain why that's funny sorry yes um you started this project in December or something last year right about um, collecting people's stories where they lost confidence in their own findings. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, so, yeah, that's the uh, loss of confidence project. Now, actually, I did not start that. I just kind of, like, picked it up because um, Charles Yaconi and uh, Chris Chabri were kind of busy, and so they had kind of initiated the whole idea, but it was born on Facebook. And so the idea is that um, researchers who have lost confidence in one of their own findings um, can disclose their loss of confidence. And basically, I'm just like running the project now, and we just like finished the data collection part where we asked researchers to contribute um, their statements. And actually, then it, it's pretty like it's high up on my to do list to now read through the statements that we got 
and um, try to come up with like a coherent story we could tell to turn that into like a valuable paper that tells us something about how to do how to deal with uh, self-correction. Have you? Do you have anything that you've already learned? Uh, so I've already learned that a lot of people like love that idea. So everybody's like, oh my god, we need this for our field as, as well, and I will totally contribute something. Uh, but then it seems like not many people are actually willing to submit such a statement. So I've had maybe like, I've had a lot of people tell me that they will like submit a statement, but then somehow we got a lot less. And I, I can see that the incentives are not aligned with doing such a thing and then everybody's super busy. Um, so I don't judge anybody for not contributing. It's just interesting for me to observe how like, matters that discrepancy is between what people think should happen and what people are willing to do to make that happen. Yeah. I wonder, is it, so, so when you say loss of confidence, what, does that cover a broad spectrum? Is it just kind of, we're not sure if this might exist or are you, does it go full hog to, we have a file drawer larger than our office and therefore I don't trust any of my previous kind of papers. <laughs> what, what kind of level of disclosure, disclosure are you going for? So we we have been pretty specific that um, like there must be theoretical or methodological problems that make you question the original finding. So you forgot a confounder, you did p-hack your data until you found something, and so on. So I guess uh, maybe there's some crossover with uh, Rebecca Willen's kind of um, self-disclosure statement. So is that the bullet into bad science? I no. Don't think so. I think she she began to publish statements about her previous research, kind of almost like a retrospective twenty-one word solution of actually, if I go back and think about this study, I p-hacked it because that's the way we used to do things. Mm -hmm. But that's so. One thing is that that might be a very severe thing because that makes you look really bad. Whereas if it's maybe more of a a field-wide thing, um, mm -hmm. and I mean I'm very junior, so I'm more than happy to turn around and say that the dot probe task is awful, and I'm more than happy. To <laughs> comment on that but that's that's maybe different because it's um uh it kind of comes from a different level than mm -hmm. my previous research was awful i mean that's also true but i shouldn't go into that have you read some of the statements i i have uh, read all of them actually how many are there um i think we've received like five over the online form, and then we got one more to include uh, that has already been published elsewhere, and I think there's one more that we are still waiting for. Oh, wow, it's oh, not yeah. a lot at all. Yeah, from the sort of reaction on Twitter. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. A lot more. I would have yeah, expected said, hundreds, yeah. but <laughs> that's what it is. I think you often get that, though, that people say, like, oh, yeah, you should totally do something, and, like, we're completely going to support you, and we should all be doing X or Y and I've had that when I've been criticizing methods and a lot of people are like oh yeah you should completely be open about this and then you're like there being like I don't think you would do that <laughs> you know and I think we often lean back and do kind of Twitter activism for open science as well sometimes without action yeah I think that's true and that applies to me as well <laughs> You are listening to Reproducibility, serving you discussion of important issues in science and psychology, one mug of tea at a time. Do you like the taste of our podcast? Give us a follow on Twitter at Reproducibility, rate us on iTunes, and tell other early career researchers about us. 
If you have any questions or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter or via our email address, which is reproducibility at gmail.com. Over next weeks, we will also release some specialty flavours, small podcast episodes talking to a wide range of psychological researchers, especially awesome ECRs that we want you to meet. If you have someone you think should come on the show, send us a message. So our Skype just crashed, um, but we are back and we are going to just repeat our previous questions. So Julia, you have been adopting open science practices from quite early on and you've, you know, really written some really good papers and started your blog. And a lot of us, when we talk to you know, other early career researchers adopting such practices is seen as shooting yourself in the foot. So, I don't know, how do you keep motivated and, and keep on, on top of things? So, first of all, I do feel like I've been, like, very privileged to be in, like, the field of personality psychology where a lot of senior researchers are supportive. So, I do not feel like all that open science stuff and so on has harmed my career at all, quite the contrary. So I think that's like field specific and I do see how people that are in other fields like social psych, they are basically like fighting in like an uphill battle and that does seem quite scary to me. So my situation is not quite comparable to those people. But then my motivation still like kind of oscillates between like I'm, oh, this is amazing. This is what I want to do and this is so important and oh my God, I'm going to like quit academia and start my own vegan cupcake shop instead, <laughs> which is my plan B. Um, so that's it's actually really, really reassuring to hear because so we have a Twitter chat and I think this is we go through these oscillations on a week by week basis and it's it's you sometimes think oh some people are just so committed and don't question you know they they their decision to be in academia the decision to really fight for this cause and yeah it's really reassuring to hear that you know everybody everybody go through oscillations of motivation because it it does take a lot of energy um, and time, actually. To... Could you... I, I do think it would... No, no, go, Sorry. go, go. I, I think it would be a bad thing if you stopped questioning those things because there is that like tendency right now that I see that's like, open oh, science, yay, let's do all the things without much um, reflection about how to like actually uh, get to the point where we do good science and value good science, which is not exactly the same as open science, right? So open open science is not sufficient to have good science. And so I do think it's it's good to remain like just a bit more skeptical about all the, all of these things. And even I, I see like those like motivational cycles. I, I even see them in my um advisor who is obviously a fully tenured professor. And still it's kinda of like sometimes he's really optimistic and sometimes he's like we should just like burn down certain fields of psychology because <laughs> you can just forget about them, right? So I think this is just like normal and probably a good thing if you are not always super upbeat and happy about the way things are. So you just said that open science doesn't equal good science. And, you know, in I think we often forget that. So can you elaborate on that a bit more? So I mean, you can run like an experiment that doesn't tell you anything, but it's pre-registered, you share your data, you're super, no, super open about everything, and all the reviewers find their reviews, and it's still like just not valid, not informative, and so on. So I, I think of it more like 
that way. I, I do think that more openness is like a necessary precondition for better science, just because we do have these issues that like people report results that don't really like can be reproduced from the data and so on, which are which are all like necessary preconditions to have a valid finding. But it's by no means sufficient. So I do think we will need a lot more training, not only in those open science practices and so on, but in in methods and in as well as in like rigorous theoretical reasoning, which goes beyond boxes and arrows and so on, and to actually get to the point where we are doing proper science. That's both optimistic and depressing. Um, <laughs> should get to the point where we're doing proper science. That would be nice to psychology, wouldn't it? Um, I mean, some people are doing, uh, some parts of psychology are already doing proper science. So I don't know. So there are always in the cognitive people who are, some of them are really doing amazing work. I'm always like, I'm just talking about the part of psychology that I really know, where I uh, do not think we are at the point yet where we are doing like, proper science, the best possible way it could be done. I just pointed at Sophia. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, so what would your um, advice be then for, um, I mean, maybe particularly early career researchers, because those are the easier ones to maybe give advice to, <laughs> um, but <laughs> about, you know, um, so sure we have all these um, open science practices that um, people still need to be introduced to, but then when it comes to um, further things as well, um, yeah, what what should people prioritize and um, what should they um, get to grips with kind of thing? So this will not be like a very satisfying answer, but I guess it very much depends on what people like aim for. So depending on your goal, the advice may like very right so if you do want to like have an academic career then you might it might be necessary to um, compromise on some aspects depending on your subfield um, you might um, be forced to publish a paper that you don't fully agree with just because it's sort of a requirement in your field um, but then again if you if you do not feel like uh, becoming a professor is the like main goal of your life and you're really into the science part, then I would say just try to do the best possible science that you can do. And some fields are in that nice situation that these things, things seem to be more aligned, which would be like the optimal state. But in other fields, so for example, when I talk to people in social psych, and I don't want to insult any social psychologists, <laughs> But they do have like a, a certain research culture and that is not well aligned with um, certain open science practices and so on. And I do think that um, if you're into open science but want to have a career in that field, which will also be necessary to have an impact on the field and maybe change practices, then it might be necessary to maybe cut down on something for some time. And I know there are some people out there who are quite um, idealistic about these things I can't say whether that's the best um, way to go about things if you want to become a professor, for example. We always have a range of idealism in our <laughs> group as well. <laughs> that always, so that also the, fluctuates. That also fluctuates. Who's the idealist? Well, the person who's like the most like, we should change everything and be really blunt about it is Sam. Really? Maybe I think things should change in a lot of ways that a lot more conversations should 
be able to be had. So, mm. so you mentioned there about um, maybe compromising on certain practices or something so that you can get the publication so that you can do whatever and I think I I agree with that but then what I would maybe caveat that with is that we should still be able to have these conversations right about Mm -hmm. but this practice should still improve we should still have Mm -hmm. like almost be able to force that point and be able to say well this particular thing is still crap though this doesn't give us any any Mm -hmm. knowledge any information we should be able to to talk a lot more about all of these issues which is also kind of part of the reason why we started the podcast in the first place and especially early career researchers should have much more of a voice so that they can enact that change right um and i yeah we we fluctuate between us I (laughs) i think the main fluctuation for us is just thinking about how to best evoke change like I don't know how it is at your university, but in ours, you really need to, you know, ensure like what you say to whom and everything very slow. And you need to make sure that, you know, we, that you don't insult people (laughs) and that you don't seem too radical or too militant. And yeah, I think that that's something where it's really difficult to know where the balance is. Um, have you had something like that at your university? So what is quite amazing at my um, department is, so I still remember when I took like that social psych class and we had that famous barge study about uh, social priming and so on that does not, does not seem to replicate. And so, um, the professor was, so I, I kind of asked, oh, hmm, this is interesting. Has this ever been replicated? And I was fully aware of all of the background story. And so he had never heard of the replication failures and that like famous Bartrand and so on. He was like, no, no, this has been like replicated many, many times. And so that was um, back in 2013, I think. And now five years later, we do have a very active um open science initiative here and that very um, lab, the social psych lab, they are now very much into pre-registering everything, like all the theses, all their studies and so on. So I do feel like that, like change is not not really a continuous thing, but just at some point, like there was like a switch and suddenly there seems to be like general agreement that open science is a good thing and that we need to prepare students for how to do open research and so on. And I do think, um, at least in Germany, um, that is, uh, so Felix Schönbrot in Munich might be partly, um, to blame for that because, uh, they have been super active. And so they actually had job at, um, for like a fully tenured, uh, social psych professorship that explicitly asked for an open science statement. And so that suddenly, realigned all the incentives because everybody wants to become a tenured uh, professor. And so that made like, a huge difference. So I do feel like, so we had change happening. It was not continuous. Um, and right now I'm, I'm pretty happy about things, how things are going at our department. So we have that open science initiative. People seem to be on the same side and we are also reaching out um, to other departments like sociologists and so on because they are, they are also aware of these issues now. It's going really well here. I think um, we've just been a bit lucky. Um, 
It's probably also um, a bit different in Germany because we do have um, this distributed network of, of open science initiatives that have been started at multiple universities, which is um, going pretty strong right now. Yeah, and you were saying that you have a kind of web or some sort of site where you exchange things and you have a speaker list and it seems a oh, bit yeah, more yeah, centralized yeah. than what we have. Yes. So it's basically, I don't know who's, it's not really organized in a central manner. It's just like that OSF project. And at some point I was like, shouldn't we like translate the project into English? And like, yeah, sure, do that. So I just did that. So it's not really um, organized in any, it's, it's just like self-organized from the bottom up. And it does seem to work pretty well. Though I think, um, again, Felix Schoengroth uh, has to take credit for that because he kind of initiated it and now it's going really well. And we do get a lot of requests um, to give talks on open science. Probably the same for you guys, I don't know. But we are always like referring to each other because we are not available. And then it's like, oh no, that was the guy who recommended you. And I'm like, oh no. So. <laughs> oh wow, we, yeah, no, we've just looked at each other and um, shook our heads a bit. <laughs> um, but, but I wonder if there's a slight difference there because I know that... Um... Dorothy gets an Dorothy, yeah. Dorothy Bishop gets an awful lot of requests, and I think she has once or twice passed them on, yeah. depending on availability. But I don't know if that's mm. maybe a, a cultural thing of let's ask the senior person that we know about rather than mm. kind of let's just ask someone that knows about this. I think there's maybe just a difference mm. there, and a nice difference. <laughs> I'd prefer it. Yeah, I think in the UK we just have we have like the key players, like key senior players, Chris Chambers, Marcus Vanaffo, Dorothy Bishop, and you can kind of probably, they they do a huge amount of speaking and, and public engagement mm. or science engagement on that. So, yeah. Well, we have, we have about five minutes um, left. So other than saying, you know, you should have chosen personality psychology <laughs> as, as a general advice, um, what do you think that we as psychologists should focus more on? So naturally at the moment we're focusing a lot at, also in the open science movement on pre-registration, on just being transparent, um, on, on these issues, but a lot of people say that we're kind of not focusing on other things that are important. So is there anything that you can think of that doesn't get enough airtime? So I do think that most of us, or at least I should do more, is um, reading outside of our like small and tiny research fields. Because actually there's like a huge overlap within psych, but also with um, other fields of research where it would be so helpful if you just look at what, what other people have said about the same subject. And even like you can start, I am doing, I'm doing well-being research. And sometimes I feel like everybody who's doing well-being research could like stop publishing for one year and go back and read like the old Greek philosophers because people are just like reiterating points that have been made thousands of years ago. So I think it would be really great if everybody would take more time to read outside of their field. And then again, I see how this is not incentivized. But I think it would greatly improve the quality of our research. There is a lot. There's a lot of talk going on, isn't there, about just the quantity of research and how everybody's publishing, 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 and then you know I'm a culprit in this. That I've, you know, I I I read, but if I wouldn't have Twitter, which sometimes you know throws <laughs> papers outside of my you know RSS feed at me, I would 
be reading pretty little. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, do you do you think that you know you are active on on Twitter? Do you think that that is more of a you know there's a big debate if it's waste time or if it gives you enough <laughs> positive or how how do you use it? So I don't know how much I agree with the notion of actually wasting time. So it always depends on what you want to get out of it. And so for me, Twitter has been extremely helpful, in particular for what you just described, for getting reading recommendations outside of your field. And so I've, I've read so many books that I only got because I saw them on Twitter. And so for me, that's a plus because I feel like it broadens my horizon. But maybe for somebody who would be more career oriented, I could have like cranked out five JPSPs in, in that time. So <laughs> that it always depends on you, Julia. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe that's a good note to end on. <laughs> or Sam, Sophia, do you have any? Um... So what, one of the things that we're trying to do with these uh, specialities is sort of introduce our small but hopefully growing listenership of early career researchers to other just awesome early career researchers. Um, do you have any suggestions for other early career researchers that everybody should just know about and look at their stuff? Oh. Now, she, so, she, you, now you need to mention everybody who's on your blog with you. <laughs> if not, they'll probably I, evict you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to say I can only recommend all of my co-bloggers. What's your blog called again? Um, it's the 100% confidence interval. Which is an awesome name. Um, yeah, well, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Um, yeah, we'll ask the listeners for some new ECR recommendations as well. Um, so, but we'll keep the other 100% confidence interval co-bloggers in mind. <laughs> Um, but till then, thank you very much for listening. Um, and yeah, thanks for joining us, Julia. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>